Welcome, and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. AJ, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me here on the I Love Data Centers podcast. Thank you, Sean. It's uh, great to be here today. So for those who don't know AJ, AJ Byers, AJ works over at Root Data Centers up in the Canadian uh, marketplace and has spent a number of years working in the data center industry. And we're going to have uh, an interesting conversation digging into where uh, AJ came from and how he got to where he's at today and hopefully talk a little bit about Canada and the Canadian data center world and how it's evolved to where it is today and where it's going in the future. Um, but without further ado, you know, AJ, could you just briefly tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do today? Sure. So I'm AJ. I, uh, I'm the president CEO of Root Data Centers in Canada. Root is one of the largest wholesale data center companies in Canada, which only started about three and a half, four years ago because the wholesale data center industry in Canada is very new. I've been, uh, I've been involved in the industry in Canada for over 20 years now and right from the very beginning. Um, but it's really been a retail data center market for a number of years. And the transition has uh, to wholesale has only been as of late. So were you also, did you also found, were you one of the founders of Root Data Center as well? No. So I, I joined Root uh, about about a year after uh, Jason Van Gaal founded it. Um, I'd met Jason in a, in a previous life. So prior to Root, I was the president of uh, Rogers Data Centers in Canada. We had 15 data centers across the country. And um, while I was growing that business, we ran out of capacity in the Ottawa market. <clears throat> and we ran across Jason and he had started a data center company. The data center was fairly new. It didn't have a lot of customers. We needed capacity and we ended up buying his company uh, to add capacity to our platform. When Jason later started his business and was growing it in the, uh, or just started in the, in the Montreal market, um, he and the board were looking for someone to come in and help accelerate the growth of the organization and take over as CEO. And that's uh, kind of how I got to know Jason again and got involved in Root. Awesome. All right. So we'll, we'll dig back into that storyline. Um, but one of the questions I, I always ask my listeners that I love getting into is how how you became a geek in the first place um, and hearing, hearing that evolution, you know, for, for myself, for example, my father was a, uh, he managed the broker dealer clearing divisions on the floor of the CBOT and CBOE and had a, a firm that had offices all over the place. And so he would constantly bring home 
the new IBM uh, laptops and, and not laptops, but uh, PCs and say, Sean, figure this out and then teach me uh, how it works so that, that I actually know how to use these, these things in my office. Um, but what, what's your backstory? Where, where did you grow up? Are you native to, to Canada and how, what got you involved in tech? So it's, it's, a, it's actually a, an interesting story. I, I got involved in tech fairly early on. My dad is a general contractor, but realized, hey, computers are going to be big for the kids as they grow up. And when the TI-99 4A came out 100 years ago, um, he drove over to the U.S. from Canada and bought one of them for each, myself and my brother, brought them home, and we self-taught ourselves how to program in basic at kind of age eight. And we both kind of got involved on, in computers. My brother followed a, a more uh, computer programmer path. I got involved in my dad's business and kind of got, went down the construction path and ultimately went to school for structural engineering. And I was building high rises in downtown Toronto when I got a call from a group of guys that I went to school with and said, hey, hey, AJ, we're getting involved in this internet thing. We know you're a contractor, but we know you have kind of an entrepreneurial background. Would you come and help us run this business for us? And kind of overnight, I said, okay, I'm going to throw away all my construction experience and construction career, and I'm going to go get involved in the internet. Um, so we started a company kind of late, mid to late 90s. Um, it was an internet service provider organization. We very quickly focused more on business customers versus kind of the consumer market. And we started doing, doing co-location in our server room for our internet service provider company. Um, we then realized that the only data centers in Canada were effectively telco hotels. And our company, which was called Magma Communications, and I think it was 1999, built the very first non-telco data center in Canada, which was a, a standalone warehouse. I think it was a 12,000 square foot data center that we decided to invest in and build. And, and just to help give some perspective on how new data centers were back in 1999, we did an open house that lasted two days and I think 800 people came to see this thing over wow. the period of two, two days. Just to do a tour of the facility. Just to, just to see what a data center is because they'd never seen one before in their lives. Well, um, so backing up, you said that your friends knew you as being an entrepreneur. What, what led them to believe that? Were you starting companies back in school and or prior to that? Yeah, so when I was 16 years old, growing up with my dad, he, uh, he always uh, hired drafts people to kind of do the drawings for his building. And I said, hey, dad, I'll buy the computer. You buy the CAD software. I'll do your drawings for you. So I started doing that, self-taught, um, doing blueprints for his construction projects. And I started selling blueprints for houses in my neighborhood. And I would come home from school um, at night and do, do, do a, a set of drawings for a house and sell them kind of on a weekly basis. So I was kind of selling a set of blueprints in, the mark, in, the, in kind of our small town market every week and kind of building up funds to help myself through university. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember I was blessed to have had an engineering class in high school that taught me how to use AutoCAD and that tool alone blew my mind and got me interested in how you can leverage computers to do so much more. And, and there's tons of software that for people who don't have a lot of training, they kind of help you kind of get through 
all those gaps because they do a lot of it for you. So um, advancing into magma communications, you had to survive or attempted to survive the, the O2 bubble bursting. What, what was that experience like or O1, O2 bubble bursting internet bubble? What, how did that play out? Yeah, it's an interesting story. We, uh, we were a bunch of young guys, 20 something building this internet service provider business. We were, we were very focused on customer service as our key. Uh, we, from the very start when we started the company it was a three ring rule every call into the company had to be answered within three rings which created this phenomena and growth for us that was kind of unprecedented in kind of the internet service provider space and we were growing at leaps and bounds and i think when the bubble burst we were 150 employees already and for the first time ever we had a fairly negative impact on the business and we had to downsize and we were we were twenty something managers who had only hired people, so we had to go through the process of figuring out how to how to shrink the company. And we, we I think at that point we brought it down to about one hundred and twenty. So thirty of our employees had to go, um, as everything was correcting in the market, and and that was a pretty uh, life changing learning experience as a, a new manager um, in a business and and running a business. So that was tough. Um, the benefit to being in an internet services business during a downturn is it, is it is recurring revenue and the benefit to recurring revenue is it keeps coming in every month and and people were not turning off their internet um, during that downturn. So people kept purchasing. I would say it was just, uh, there was an instant decline in the number of new signups into the organization and therefore the people that would assist us kind of from a new growth perspective, um, they, they needed to go and that, that was, uh, I mean, it was tough for us and for everybody in the company because we were we were a family of people who had grown up from four or five employees, and we kind of we we were all very close. Even though to think it's 150 people, we were 150 people who were all very close and knew each other and their families uh, intimately. So um, it, it was a tough it was a tough uh, time for us. That's interesting um, because a lot of the people that I've interviewed who were in San Francisco or uh, Chicago or New York, for example, during that time frame, you know, they were less concerned about having to lay off just a handful of people, but more concerned about laying off the entire company and dealing with bankruptcy proceedings. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and they, I think, and I think we, were, I think we were lucky as a service provider for sure. Yeah, and the um, the other kicker, it. So, what markets were you in when you were when you were doing all that? So at that time we were we were in the single market. So so I had grown up in you asked me earlier. I, I'd grown up in a small town of Winchester, uh, just south of the city of Ottawa. Uh, when we started the business, it was uh, some guys I had known from even pre-university, uh, from hometown almost. So we we decided to start the company in the Ottawa area. So it was an Ottawa-based company. Gotcha. So the market that you were serving there was primarily in and around Ottawa. Yeah. Okay. And for most of us uh, ignorant Americans, can you help those who are listening kind of have a visual cue as to where Ottawa is relative to, let's say, some of the other well-known cities, Calgary, Vancouver, uh, Montreal, Quebec, Toronto, Winnipeg? Sure. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a running joke inside of the 
of the country that Toronto is the center of the universe. So think of Toronto kind of being in the middle in Ontario. Um, Calgary, Vancouver, West Coast, uh, Montreal, on your way to the East Coast. I'd say, I'd say central adjacent is what, how I'd describe Montreal. Between Toronto and Montreal, kind of on your way, if you just go north a little bit, there's the city of Ottawa. Ottawa is the capital of Canada. Um, uh, and it was 100 years ago determined to be the capital just due to its location on a river. Um, but it did not grow from a, from a city size perspective. It's, it's north of a, of a million people in, or one and a half million people in Ottawa, where Toronto is kind of our largest city, which is kind of third or fourth largest in all of North America with six to eight million. Um, and then Montreal would be a second or third uh, ranking city in the country. But, but I'd say the core um, main cities across Canada all kind of run in that million, million and a half people. So it is a fairly major city in the country. And because it is the capital of the country, um, there's a lot of government uh, there. But it was, it was our kind of Silicon Valley North for a number of years. So it, it housed. Alcatel Lucent, it had Nortel, it had some of the biggest technology companies in Canada resided in Ottawa probably until 2005 and 2006. And then that technology, Silicon Valley North shifted uh, to kind of being shared between Toronto and I'll even say Waterloo areas. But I'd say that the southwestern Ontario kind of took over domination for Silicon Valley North. Gotcha. And have you in your career lived outside of Canada or have you been in Canada the whole time? I have lived in Canada the entire time. I moved from Ottawa to Toronto in, uh, I think it was 2006. And I've been in Toronto uh, from a uh, housing perspective ever since. Gotcha. Um, okay. So we've, we've established now that you are definitely a native Canadian. Um, and my wife and I jokingly but truthfully like to say that we've never met a Canadian that we haven't liked <laughs> because it's, it's simply the truth. I mean, the, the, the Canadian folks that we've met from all over seem to be very, very friendly and personable and uh, just open, open people. You know, I'm sure we could probably come across some asshole Canadians if we go to enough Canadian uh, hockey games, but, uh, but we haven't quite done that yet. Um, but with that, you then moved from one ISP and data center uh, related business to to another, and what what did you learn through that journey as you were going through the two thousands? Yeah, it's funny. So we sold Magma to Primus, and we 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 needed to make a decision at that point. One decision one is, hey, we need to expand this company across the country and go into new regions and fund it ourselves and, and go big or go home, or we do an exit at this point and be part of someone else's platform? And can we find a platform where we can continue to grow this business um, and not necessarily exit? And we decided to do the second. And the reason Primus worked really well for us is Primus in Canada at the time was 85 or 90% consumer. And they had this small business services division. It was only 10 or $20 million a year in revenue. Um, and they really only did local lines and long distance. So it was more of a telco than an ISP for, from a business services perspective. And they were, they were looking for um, ISP services and rather than try to build them themselves, it, made, it was a great synergy for us. So we sold to Primus in 2004 
And within six or eight months, I took over their business services division to grow it, um, uh, to grow it across the country for them and kind of take our platform and turn that, put that into multiple cities. The short version of the story is we grew that combined business from about $35, $40 million to $100 million in revenue in about three years. And we took it from one data center to nine data centers across the country in that same period of time. So it was a fairly quick growth rate sitting inside of their platform and leveraging the funds that they had to help us grow the business. Right on. And I'm curious, uh, I don't think I've ever asked this question to anyone who's been up in your, your neck of the woods, but did the 2008 downturn affect the markets that you were in as much as it affected the markets here in the United States? Yeah, so that was, that was actually the turning point for Primus globally. Um, and uh, again, we were US-based, so maybe that's why it impacted us so badly. But uh, Primus at the time had, Primus before I, I joined, way back before the dot-com uh, crash that you talked about in 0102, they had borrowed over a billion dollars. And instead of doing what every other telco did, write it down and claim bankruptcy, they decided they're going to pay it down over time because they wanted to keep all the owners wanted to keep their ownership and didn't want to write off their ownership. So when I joined, I think they had gotten down to uh, half a billion dollars in debt or three hundred billion dollars. I don't remember the exact number. Um, it was a public company, so it was all there. Um, and then what happened in 08, 09 was they ran up against the point in time where they needed to refinance, and unfortunately, that was a really bad time to refinance. In an '09, had to take the company into uh, protection, and ended up the CEO ended up leaving. New CEOs came in, and then what they realized was, hey, the proper path for this. I say we were the smallest global ISP on the planet. Um, from a, we were in so many countries, but very tiny in every country. So we started selling off assets, and we sold off Australia, and we sold off our Asian assets, and we sold off our European assets, and we were left with Primus North America. And then sitting inside of this Primus North American entity was this data center business that I'd, I had uh, built. And we said, hey, the most valuable part of this entity is the data center business. Let's spin it out and call it Black Iron Data. And then we ran that for about six or eight months and put it on the market. And we then sold Black Iron Data to Rogers, um, and I became president of Rogers Data Centers through that sale and ended up, and that's where kind of my Rogers stint started. Gotcha. Interesting. Um, so let's, let's get into Root Data Center. You, you spoke about how you played with um, Jason, right? Yep. In, in a past life and, and how you were brought into to Root. And in fact, we know each other through Mike Segal, uh, who I met at his prior prior company and spent time with at the Channel Partner Expo in Las Vegas. Um, and when he went over to Root, he started talking to me about the facility and the data center and the the Montreal marketplace. And I'm curious, like, why why have you guys not moved beyond Montreal? I, I have a million questions, but let's start there. So why why is Root uh, rooted in Montreal specifically and not moved beyond that market? Um, so we're in Montreal um, predominantly because of the demand in that market, which is predominantly driven by the low cost of electricity, uh, the lowest cost of electricity in the entire Canadian market. So as no. the cloud service 
as the cloud service providers have entered the Canadian market to go after uh, big business Canada or enterprise Canada and the federal government, um, they were looking for locations that were cost effective. And they've all announced over the last three years or four years that they've entered the Montreal market. Um, and it's, again, driven, driven predominantly by that's where most of the wholesale data center providers have set up shop. And, and we've all set up shop there because of the low cost of power. And to give everybody some perspective, the cost of power in Montreal is about, in, in U.S. dollars, is about 3.6 cents per kilowatt hour. Nice. Um, so one of the lowest in Canada, but also almost the lowest price of power you can get in all of North America. So we set up we we set up shop in Montreal about four years ago. We ended up winning some very large deals, and and the most interesting part of this whole story is those deals have kept us so busy and expanding in that market that we haven't really had time to kind of reach out and start expanding into other markets. I would say we're now at that point as a company where we got to again we're at a stage in the company where. We've built a very large platform in the Montreal market, and it's time to start looking at where else in the world we'd like to expand. Gotcha. And I see that you guys have financing from uh, Abri and Goldman Sachs, which I know you're probably not too unfamiliar with how having, you know, let's say, capital backers that uh, are not the owners can affect the business, but how, how has that journey been for the company? And why did you guys decide to take outside capital? So we, we had won a very, uh, very large opportunity, one of the largest data center deals ever signed in the country. We signed shortly after I joined uh, with Root, and the amount of capital required to kind of satisfy that agreement was beyond the capital available from the shareholder pool. So we went outside. Um, I'd say Abri's been a fantastic partner from the very beginning, uh, guys who have been in the data center industry forever, they understand it well, they add a lot of value when kind of making decisions from at a board level. Um, so they, they, were, they were very good from the very beginning. Um, and then as we got bigger, we were looking for a lower cost of, uh, lower cost of money than private equity money, and that's why we went to Goldman's uh, second. Um, I'd known Jeff Ferry for a number of years and uh, we put together a very interesting package with Jeff um, that allowed us to kind of take that next leap as an organization and uh, we're still leveraging kind of the, the Goldman financing at this point I'd say we're at our rate of growth we're gonna have to look at it again in the next uh, three to six months for sure um, but uh, I say both of those partners have been very good for root and certainly uh, allowed us to grow at a rate that is unprecedented in the Canadian market. Right on. So we we also briefly touched on um, how Root has been attracting a lot of wholesale providers, and the the cost of power is obviously a key influencer. Um, does is there anything equivalent to like the VAT that Europe has within Canada for U.S. based companies? Like, do they have to set up a Canadian entity to clear stuff through to? avoid some of those taxes or how, how does that play out? I would say there's, there's a couple of different tax items. I would say if you're going to do business in Canada, which most of these companies are, um, they get most of their tax back. So there's, a, it, there's an ability in Canada that you can write off all of your tax for purchasing data center services against the tax you achieve through running your business. 
So any of the cloud service providers who are doing business in Canada or any software company or technology company that's going to do business in Canada will absolutely be able to almost be tax neutral uh, from a services perspective when they come to Canada. If you are coming to Canada uh, to just service the rest of the world and have no business in Canada, there are also ways to look at ways to structure uh, your organization and structure things with us as a provider that could uh, reduce tax. Um, so there, there is a tax, so there's HST and, or sorry, I should say in, in Quebec it's GST and PST, so there's provincial and federal tax. Um, but in most cases, you can reduce or eliminate that tax uh, through some form or, or another. Does it require some type of scale for companies to leverage that? Or if, you know, can companies that simply need a couple cabinets worth of infrastructure to deploy, does that apply to them as well? Yeah, if, in, in most cases, the revenue they're getting from a co-location cabinet will exceed the cost of that cabinet, and therefore the tax on the sale side is going to be way higher than the tax on the buy side. So in all of those cases, whether you're one cabinet of services or a hundred or a thousand, excuse me, um, you're going to be able to write off your tax. Gotcha. Interesting. Recover, okay. I guess I say recover your tax. All right. So let's dig into the um, kind of history and current state and ongoing future state of the marketplace there, because obviously, as as we alluded to, there's been an explosion in demand uh, in Montreal specifically and Toronto um, from companies, hyperscale companies and whatnot that are that are growing in that marketplace. Is like what what led to such an explosion happen? And how did, you know, when you were running data centers back in the late 90s, right? Um, how have you seen that marketplace evolve to, to where we are? Yeah, it's funny. The, the data center industry in Canada, in my opinion, has been relatively small. And if I think about the data centers we built right up until 2010, 2012, like a five megawatt data center in a in a 50 or 60,000 square foot warehouse was a massive data center in Canada. And it would take you a few years to fill it. And that was servicing both small to medium enterprise and I'd say some large enterprise. But the, the business, I'd say in any given market, um, there was no massive data centers. And, and, five, and again, as I say, five megawatt data centers were really, really big. We... At root, our second data center is a 50 megawatt data center and 135,000 square feet, only about five or six years later. Um, and I'd say the size of the customers coming in are fives and tens of megawatts on a per customer basis now versus those one, I'll even say 200 kilowatt or 500 kilowatt customers were massive five to seven years ago. So we've gone through a major shift from kind of just being a, a data center country that serviced SME and enterprise to a data center country that is now servicing the largest technology companies in the world. Well, that's pretty awesome. So what what is the catalyst for these U.S. companies starting to understand and realize that uh, they should move their infrastructure into that marketplace? Is it purely the demand from the Canadian consumer or is it are they servicing 
U.S. customers from there, or what? What does that look like? So I think I think it's twofold. And um, so number one, with with Canadian data residency laws, most large enterprise, uh, all of government, and many even small and medium sized businesses cannot allow their data to leave the country. So if a cloud service provider, whether it be the big hyperscale guys like Google and Amazon and Microsoft or even the application service providers like a Salesforce, if they want to do business in Canada with those organizations, they need to keep their data in the country. And there's, there was this pent up demand because we didn't have any large scale cloud providers in the country until the last three or four years. So the entire market was sitting there going, hey, we'd love to use the cloud, but we can't. And then all of a sudden one day, there was this indication that the cloud guys were coming and I'd say data center sales in the Canadian market plummeted. So they, I would say they probably dropped by 80% for about a year, year and a half while everyone waited. And I'd, anyone in the industry was just seeing their sales go to almost zero and nothing was selling. Then all the why, cloud guys, go ahead. So why, why would the fear of the cloud guys coming prevent people from no, they, wanting to buy infrastructure? They, they wanted to go into the cloud. They didn't want to waste money on infrastructure uh, if the cloud is coming. Gotcha. So th they're sitting there going, I'm going to hold off on my spend. I'm going to wait for these cloud guys. So that, that year and a half when there was announcements, but nobody here, there was nothing going on in the market. And then all of a sudden the cloud guys came. And I, my understanding uh, from the cloud guys is that their growth rates have been anywhere from two to five times faster than any of them ever expected. And, and, it, what, and it really was this pent up demand for cloud services in country. Yeah. And what was the, what years are we talking about there? So most of the cloud guys showed up uh, in the last two years. So kind of, if you think 2016 on, uh, people were starting to, to jump into hyperscale cloud in country. I'd say between 14 and 16, Traditional data center sales were plummeting. Gotcha. Interesting. And I assume that the, uh, just like here in the US and globally, that there's no signs of slowing down anytime soon. No, we've, uh, yeah, we, we keep a pretty good eye on the market, and there's certainly analysts that are, that are kind of speculative on the market. But I would say all of the large hyperscalers are here. And growing rapidly, we are also, there's always that concept, and I think you've seen it in every U.S. market, where there's that fast follower group of the next 50 or 100 technology companies who come after the hyperscale guys. Canada is now seeing kind of those fast followers come into the market and look for capacity. And even at root, when we, over the last two years, as the hyperscale guys were coming in, we were super busy uh, working to deliver services. Um, and then... There was a little bit of a lull, kind of end of last year, where the, the amount of capacity and demand was starting to fall off a bit. But as we came into 2018, I, there's there's demand in the Canadian market like I've never seen it before, like 10, 15 megawatts of capacity kind of in demand right now. So, it, which is again just unprecedented in the Canadian market. So are you seeing now an, a, a spike in competitors that are popping up and or, you know, the, the likes of the wholesale providers here in the States looking now intently to encroach, encroach on your space? 
Um, we are certainly hearing rumors that some of them are looking um, at Canada. I think I think they always, especially the guys who are looking to go global, will always look around and say, which market is the best market? And hey, do we want to be the third or fourth guy into the market? Or do we want to go into a different market and be the first guy in? Um, I would say there's there's definitely interest in the market. I would say almost anybody you could think of that's in the wholesale space is looking at Montreal and wondering, hey, should we build? We are not aware of anybody who's kind of put a shovel in the ground at this time. Gotcha. Interesting. All right. So uh, one of the burning questions I have here for you is why why is it that power is so cheap in Montreal relative to the rest of Canada and the rest of the U.S.? Like where, where are you getting the power from? So the power in Montreal is hydro-based power, so hydroelectric from dams. Um, the province of Quebec a number of years ago invested hundreds of millions of dollars building massive dams kind of in the waterways of Quebec. Um, and therefore, they can, because that capital investment was done many years ago, they can now offer electricity to that market at a, at a very low rate in comparison to other provinces in the country like Canada, or sorry, like Ontario, where the rate is north of 12 or 15 cents per kilowatt hour. And that's why we're not seeing data center growth in Toronto at, a, at any uh, significant rate. But Toronto, or sorry, the province of Ontario is now trying to build out infrastructure to for, to supply power to the province and is now investing all that money and needs to get a return on those, those investments and therefore the cost of power is way higher in Ontario versus Quebec where the investments were made many years ago. Wow, that's interesting. Um, you know, I noticed uh, one of the announcements that came out was that you guys are using the Litbit AI platform and funny enough, uh, I interviewed Scott Noteboom uh, last year as well on the podcast. And we spoke about how, uh, Lipit was being used in data centers, but I'm, I'm curious what led to that decision and how has that, uh, that platform, how is that platform being leveraged for you guys today? Sure. So our view on, our view on the data center world in general is how, how do we, how do we keep the cost out of the business? And we look at it from every aspect. How do we keep power costs low in our designs? How do we keep PUE low and we use Kyoto cooling and and we do free air cooling and then we look at people costs and people costs are one of the biggest parts of our organization and then we look at the scale of our data centers and with a 50 megawatt data center um, we're going to have a lot of generators and, and ge generators is where we started with the uh, uh, Litbit. We're going to have a lot of generators. We're going to have anywhere from 30 to 50 generators on site uh, to support that building and during a generator or a power outage, when there's 30 or 50 generators running, having enough people to walk around and listen to everyone and make sure they're all running properly is difficult. You would need many, many people. We said, hey, with AI, we can listen to all these generators and know instantly if there's, some, if there's a sound or something going on with the generator while it's running. So that's why we started there. So we created um, sound profiles of how the generator should sound when it's windy out, when it's raining out, when it's kind of normal operation and, and we have these sound profiles and now every time the generators run we can compare it to those sound profiles and say hey there's something weird going on in in a generator if there was so for us it was really about how do we keep uptime high and one of the elements of keeping uptime high is to make sure there that there are technicians listening and and paying attention when when some of the infrastructure is running and how do we kind of augment that with 
the, the personas, as Libbit calls it, and not have to have real people listening to every generator. Awesome. Have you have you moved that AI beyond the generator case study, or is it still? Are you uh, at this point? We're still we're still on the generators. We started that one kind of November of last year, and we we did the sound profiles, and we're testing it and running a number of uh, tests on that uh, implementation. Um, we have not kind of moved it inside the building yet. But there are there are conversations around taking it into the UPS room, even taking it into the main data hall areas for certain aspects of it as well. Anything to do with sight or sound works really well with that platform. Um, but we have not moved from the generator aspects yet. Gotcha. Okay. And then the other piece that you briefly touched on is Kyoto cooling, which is a brand new concept, or I've never heard of Kyoto cooling before. Can you dig into what that is and how, how you're leveraging that? Sure. So Kyoto has been around... I don't, I don't want to misquote, but I think it's been around for eight or 10 years, but it was predominantly used for low density implementation. So not in high, high density data centers in the early years, just because the technology wasn't advanced enough to do high density. Um, and it was used in cable head ends and, and other low density implementations. And effectively what it is, it's, uh, it's a, uh, an air exchanger. So this, this rotating wheel, this entropy wheel, rotates inside of a chamber. The hot air of the data center room goes through it. It attracts the heat out of it and sends cool air back into the room. It spins around, and the cold air from outside blows through it and cools it off to go back through the cycle. And it just continually spins um, with a small motor. And the only electricity used to control this entire cooling platform is just spinning this wheel. So very low cost of operation. Um, what happened was about five, six years ago, they were able to adapt the technology into a high density platform. And we were one of the first companies in North America to implement the Kyoto cooling at scale. Uh, we spent a lot of years working with the Kyoto team and kind of perfecting that platform. And uh, I'd say the group uh, now really likes the platform. We've kind of, we've Excuse me, we've become experts in the Kyoto platform for data centers, high density data centers. And uh, we are getting in Montreal, due to the temperatures there, free air cooling between 85 and 90% of the year, which again drives our PUE down and is very good for our wholesale customers who are traditionally purchasing services in a uh, plus power model where it's passed through power to them. And therefore, any savings we can give them on the power side is a net cost. Uh, benefit to them as an organization or as a customer to our to root. Gotcha. Interesting. That's awesome. So for even so, the the PUE that I see listed here is at around one point two for the building, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, you've got industry average at one point six five, uh, and Google's at one point one two. To maintain a 1.2 in a retail co-location environment is extremely difficult, right? Because you can't really plan for or know how many different customers of what size and shape are going to be going in your suites. Like, what is it purely just the Kyoto cooling that's allowing you to drive your PUE so low, or what? What other factors are you are you enforcing? You know, cold uh, cold or hot aisle containment or blanking panels. Like, what what else are you doing? Yeah, so we, 
We, our implementation is not unlike a lot of newer implementations where we've eliminated raised floor because raised floor did add a lot of inefficiencies in data center design. It worked well for a number of reasons, and I put it in a lot of data centers over the years. But in these new large-scale high-density data centers, you don't want raised floor. It will only make your uh, system more inefficient. Um, we've done a, we've done an analysis on cabinet design and airflow through cabinets where we actually custom make our cabinets and increase airflow through them to help us drive PUE down because we realized that cabinet uh, airflow was constraining um, air, uh, constraining the system and therefore causing a PUE impact. We do have hot aisle containment. Um, that aisle, the hot aisle containment is actually one of the most important elements. And to your point, on a customer implementation perspective, any customer implementation that doesn't address uh, kind of leakage uh, with the hot aisle containment will impact our PUE. So we ran, we've run uh, sections of our data center, and we've achieved the 1.2 um, PUE um, in ASHRAE temperature standards for over a year. Um, what we do find is some of our customers have different um, service levels and different temperature guidelines they want to run. If you want to run, run your room uh, three or four degrees cooler, it'll probably go up to 1.25 or 1.28. Um, and I'd say if you're not going to address leakage in the hot aisle containment, it can also add a, a 0.05 to your PUE as well and kind of drive the average up to even 1.3. So if you can keep the temperature kind of in ASHRAE guidelines and if you can keep your containment as super tight, we can, we can absolutely achieve the 1.2 PUE. Um, some customers don't always adhere to all of our suggestions. Right. Um, do you have any kind of mandate that customers adhere to it? Like some companies, for example, mandate blanking panels. And if the customer doesn't provide them or, or deal with it, then they'll install their own. Do you have a similar type of policy? We do in our retail space where it's a shared space and especially where um, it's not a plus power model. And we, the cost of power and the PUE impacts us directly as an organization, we absolutely mandate if one of our wholesale customers came in and said, hey, we're taking this entire data hall, we're in a plus power model, and if we don't put banking blanking plates in, we're paying for it ourselves anyway, if we don't want to, then we allow them to kind of impact their own PUE and really just impact their own cost. Yeah, I gotcha. Uh, so it really depends on what model they're in in the center. Gotcha. Yeah, the, uh, the whole topic for me, I love, and that's part of the reason why I truly do love data centers is because there's so many rabbit holes that you can go down, right? You can dive into how power is generated and brought to the building. You can deal with how power is delivered in the building. You can dig into the thermodynamics within the building. You could dig into the data processing that occurs in each cabinet. Um, there's just an, almost an endless uh, number of paths that will lead you down very, very, very long, long rabbit holes of, of knowledge, which I'm sure you could probably appreciate as an engineer. Yes, it's, uh, it is a, it's funny. There are days where I sit there and go, the data center industry is so simple, it's space and power. But when you, to, your, to, to the point you just made, there's a number of things that make it super complex that you have to address on a daily basis. Yeah, that's, uh, it's very hard to explain to those who are not, uh, very technically minded who do look at it and simply say, well, it's just space and power. This is not, you know, it's just real estate. This is not complicated. 
Um, but then you walk them through a data center and you walk them through all the nuance that occurs inside the facilities and you start to see light bulbs go off in people's brains. Um, that actually brings up a very interesting topic, which is you are one of the few uh, presidents of a data center that I've ever met who actually has an engineering background. Most are from the commercial real estate world and from the finance world. Uh, it sounds like you came from the engineering world and kind of picked up the finance and the the real estate piece along the way. What what was that experience like for you? It's funny when we were running Magma. If I go all the way back, um, we built this company. It was a decent sized company. We built a data center. It was all running fine, and and I thought I was an expert. I was in my mid twenties. I thought I knew everything, and then six months later, go ahead, and I'm at Primus, and I'd been there for six or eight months and I just got handed business services and we're flying down to head office to sit with our board and chat about the business. And it was in that first board meeting in a public company when I realized, Hey, I know nothing about finance. Um, and it was probably the, it was the biggest education I've ever had around, Hey, you need to know more about finance as a business leader. Um, and spent a ton of time. One of my peers at uh, Primus, Andy Day, who, um, uh, has a finance background and was running consumer business. And then my CEO at the time, I was Ted Chislett early on. I spent a lot of time with them and our CFO. And I kind of got a, I got a CFO kind of designation or a finance degree, I should say, in the school of hard knocks at Primus. And I'd say that was probably, probably one of my best learning experiences in the Primus organization is just how understanding how finance works in a, in a public organization. And even in an organization that's kind of a, billion dollars of revenue and understanding that level of finance versus kind of my small little business in Ottawa that we sold to Primus. Yeah. Related, um, as I've kind of grown in my own career path over the years, being an entrepreneur early on and then getting into enterprise sales and then going back to being an entrepreneur, I learned that those who are very personable and, you know, know how to sell and who are also engineering minded become very, very successful salesmen. And those who, can add on to that um, an understanding of finance, then know how to move up the chain to become their own CEO or, or owner of a business and entrepreneur. Um, and it's interesting how so few entrepreneurs and those who aspire to become CEOs completely ignore the whole finance component, which I too had to learn <laughs> from the school of hard knocks. Um, I always remember the first conversation I had around what a pro forma was. And I was like, what the hell are we making pro formas for? What's the point in tracking all this future, uh, you know, future cap uh, forecasts based on variables that are completely unknown that may or may not occur? Like, why is anyone taking any of this seriously? <laughs> it just it blew yeah. my mind. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, and again, I think to your point, like it's something you can only, and I would say talking to a lot of entrepreneurs and I like, I like to get out into the industry and mentor and talk to young guys who are running businesses. It's hard to explain why it's so important and even tell them why it's important until you go through it. You don't realize how important it really is. Exactly. So where do you see the industry continuing to evolve? You know, one of, one of the comments that I get from people is that, Oh, there's, you know, there's not much innovation that's going on with, with data centers these days. Would you agree with that, disagree with that, and why? I think, uh, I'm gonna parallel it into kind of the other comment that is there going to be a lot of data centers in the future or not? And I've heard varying views on, hey, will quantum mechanics reduce the number of data centers required or 
is the number of data centers required or the amount of data center capacity required going to be massive? So I believe data center capacity requirements are going to be massive. I don't think quantum mechanics solves anything other than potentially helps it from growing at 100 times versus 1,000 times bigger than it is right now, because I think technology will continue to evolve, and that technology will reside in data centers somewhere in the world, whether it be micro data centers or big data centers, all kinds of debates. Um, so I think there's going to be lots of growth. I think what's important for data center providers to do is understand what are the requirements of that growth. So we're seeing something, a new phenomena that I don't know if many data centers are finding, but we're, we're looking at the tier zero data center now, where a lot of the AI that occurs today is around, is not as critical, is that it does not necessarily need tier three data center design. So we're seeing implementations where people say, hey, we want a room for tier three, and we want to put these 10 racks in this room, and we want a tier three, we want 100% uptime, we want to put these 500 racks in a room that has power and it has ambient air cooling. We want that cooling filtered, but we just want you to blow outside air temperature through our servers and keep them running. In the event that there's an outage, we just go down. And for that period of time, we're not going to process our AI. And then when it comes back on, we'll start processing our AI again. So we're seeing, we're seeing unique technology demand, and people are going to have to look at different rooms and have different designs on a per pod or data hall basis. We're going to continue to have to look at driving costs down because it's going to stay, it's going to get more competitive. Um, we're going to have to look at more green uh, technologies as environmental issues become bigger and bigger over the years. So my view is that design will constantly evolve, um, different types of designs for different applications. We're going to have to, we're going to get down to application layer data center designing. Um, I think there's a lot, there's lots of, going to happen and evolve in the industry so you mentioned those who are looking for tier zero uh, facilities which lends and and the fact that Montreal's has such a low cost of power have you seen a major uptick in demand from mining crypto mining companies to that extent there's been demand for crypto mining companies and I think uh, that's not a space where roots really wants to uh, kind of get involved in um, however, we look at them as a way to test um, new technology designs or new designs of rooms and, and say, hey, if we can keep crypto miners running, um, potentially that, that same design we've developed can be used for the AI and visual effects and post-production industries who are looking for these same um, types of designs. So we are, I'd say globally, the data center industry has seen cryptocurrency uh, implementations. We're starting to see those fade out a bit and we're seeing demand drop off. Um, but I think it's a similar type of implementation that would satisfy them, that would satisfy these AI organizations as well. Gotcha. Um, one of the other questions I had for you is the, the interconnection, uh, you know, cloud IX play in the, you know, software defined network that is kind of the new, the new hotness in the industry right now, you know, allowing customers to access all these different hyperscalers and, and cloud providers that are moving into to Canada. How, how have you guys gone about addressing that? We, we are actually probably in the next couple of weeks going to announce how we are addressing kind of Cloud Connect. Um, we, we do think it's super critical for data center providers, especially wholesale providers, to have a path 
for a hybrid implementation. So enterprises today who are shifting from enterprise data centers to predominantly cloud-based implementations, they are still going to need to put something in the data center. And then we'll want the on-ramps to the cloud for the vast majority of um, their applications. I think there was a recent article from Gartner where they believe by the year, I think it's, I can't remember if it's 2020 or 2022, where instead of 90% of, uh, or I say 10% of data centers, of enterprise data centers being shut down to 80% of data, uh, enterprise data centers are gonna be shut down and migrate to a kind of hybrid cloud implementation. So there is a belief kind of in the next four to five years, which is kind of one cycle of server infrastructure that we're gonna see this massive shift out of enterprise into the into the data center. And therefore all of that needs cloud on-ramp. Yeah, and, and to be clear, I think what you're referring to when you say data center is not the the type of data center that you guys operate and that are the enterprise data centers, but more the server closets <laughs> that most enterprise run a handful of servers or their infrastructure out of, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, and that's not many people realize that how many uh, of those data centers or server closets exist. And I, I try to be very careful when I use the term data center uh, to really only refer to those that are enterprise, uh, you know, purpose built to run production infrastructure at scale or even you know medium scale versus just a single purpose data center. And it's a simple conversation that we have multiple times that I'm sure Mike Segal does and your sales team does. Um, you know, why do you wanna, would you wanna build a power plant right next to your office just to run the power for your office or would you use the utility because it's more convenient and it's cheaper. And the reality is, you know, we run these TCO analysis all day, every day for our customers. And it's the case, it is cheaper for you to take that infrastructure and deploy it in a data center and let them deliver that as a utility to you. And you could even take it even further and say, why even buy any server infrastructure? Uh, just outsource it to a, a hosting company. Uh, it doesn't have to be a hyperscale company because even those companies at scale can be relatively expensive. Um, but there's tons of managed service providers and managed IT companies who that's their job is to know everything and all things about security, about IT, about CPU, RAM storage, um, scaling up, down. And it's it's the equivalent of, as I said in the beginning, you know, what you're not gonna build a power plant next to your office. So why is why are you trying to build your own IT specialization within your company unless that's absolutely critical and core to your business? Yeah, and I and I would say most of them just can't grow at scale like the cloud. To your point, whether it's hyperscale or small cloud service providers or smaller cloud service providers, none of them can grow at the scale that these other organizations can for sure. So have you seen that conversation with customers evolving in line with those estimates? Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, I, I spent a lot of my time dealing with some of the largest companies in Canada and just talking to them about, hey, interested in wholesale data center space and, and kind of what are you guys doing and whether it be financial institutions or even just general business or technology, I'd say at every level in every one of those companies, they are all um, looking at cloud on ramp. They're all looking at leveraging cloud. They all believe that there's no way they can do it in house. And that's why we've seen this mass shift in Canada out into the, into the cloud infrastructure providers. Um, but yes, there's, 
there is no CTO or VP of technology in the country that is not looking at cloud as kind of their cloud first strategy as kind of their model right now. Even our government has already announced in the last six months that it's a cloud first strategy and we need to stop trying to do all this infrastructure stuff ourselves. And going back to the comment that you made about the number of data centers, what we see in the market is even with quantum computing and, and related advancements in processing, all that's doing is creating more opportunities for innovation and new technologies and new um, services that can be rolled out that will leverage that processing and requiring fatter pipes and uh, more network and and more data at the end of the day to be processed and pushed and stored. Um, so, you know, if all things remained static in a vacuum, you know, sure, quantum computing may may result in a reduction in the size of the data center. But all of our analyst work leads us to conclude that, as you, as you said, you know, maybe it's not going to grow 1,000x or 10,000x, but it's still going to be growing massively. And we see ourselves at the very infant stages of the industry. Agreed. 100% agreed. So um, what is something that you hear from either industry types or even non-industry types uh, that you think is a big misconception about about the marketplace and or what you do and what uh, what a data center is or, or anything of that sort? Um, I, I would say probably the biggest misconception is actually a Canadian market misperception if you're dealing in the U.S. where, hey, if you're coming to Canada with technology, you need to be in the Toronto market. And that's really what Root has been trying to address for the last two years is, hey, if you're coming to Canada, you really should consider the Montreal market. But I would say there's still a number of people around the world, to your point about, do people really know Canada and do they know, do they understand the market? Toronto is our biggest uh, city. Toronto is definitely the, the largest number of businesses in the country sit inside of Toronto. But if you think about Toronto, Montreal, and Ottawa, kind of three massive cities in the country, 80% of Canadian businesses kind of wrap themselves into Quebec, sorry, and not Quebec City, that. Quebec City, Montreal, Ottawa, uh, Toronto, all within a, a 400 kilometer radius of Montreal. And you can reach 80% of the business market in Canada. And um, most people are not really aware that that kind of that, cent that central location in Montreal exists to cover such a mass amount of the Canadian market, and just all they think about is Toronto. So, if there's one thing I could try to teach somebody about the Canadian market is Toronto is actually not the center of the universe. Funny enough, Montreal is the center of the business universe uh, in Canada. So, I hate to say this, but you live in Toronto right now, don't you? <laughs> I live in Toronto for sure. So, so you live in Toronto, but the facilities are in Montreal. What gives, man? Why don't you live in Montreal? So, I uh, what I've learned a number of times over the years is my presence at the data center is absolutely not required. Uh, I have a lot of smart people. <laughs> I have a lot of smart people who work for Root and kind of kind of run these data centers way better than I could even think about it. But in, in many cases, they probably prefer I don't show up. Um, so, uh, but yeah, we, I mean, we had 15 data centers across the country at Rogers and we were still kind of from a business perspective located in the Toronto market from a business perspective. Uh, I don't need to be in Montreal. My team is amazing. Uh, they do a phenomenal job keeping our data centers running 24 by seven and building new capacity. Um, I 
I'm actually almost better served out of Toronto because the airport's here and I can fly to any of my customers very quickly from the Toronto airport. Gotcha. So kind of related to your response to that question is what are three uh, things that any U.S.-based business that's looking to deploy infrastructure in Canada should know before they move forward with, with such a decision? Uh, that's a really good question. Three things a U.S.-based business should know about Canada. Um, other, other than that, they don't have to be deployed in Toronto and that they should definitely consider Montreal. Yeah, I was, trying, I was going there for sure. Three different things other than, uh, than Montreal is the best location to be. Um, I would say they definitely should be aware of taxes. You brought up taxes earlier on the call. Um, you have to make sure it's structured correctly, but it's not complicated at all. So I would say make sure that you just understand the tax regime and, and structure it correctly to minimize tax impact. But I would say we are not a tax onerous country to begin with um, uh, the, from a business perspective. So I would say not a, not a super big deal, but I would definitely go that way. I would say make sure you understand that every tr- Canadian market is different. So um, if you go to Vancouver or Calgary or Toronto or Montreal or Quebec City, there is not one approach to going after the Canadian market. I've had sales teams in every city of this country, and to be fair, every sales team, although there were some underlying co- commonalities, every sales team had a unique approach related to the type of uh, people and the type of dynamics that occur in those cities. Um, so just understand the Canadian market is very diverse, and you need a, a unique approach on a per province or per city basis. And I would say number three, um, I'd say that we don't live in igloos. It's uh, it's not as cold up here as everybody thinks. Um, <laughs> so come on and visit Canada. I'll throw a number four in there: is the uh, the exchange rate has got to play into the equation. Yes, if you're especially if you're doing to, to, you 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 had a question earlier about hey why Montreal and can you serve us outside of Montreal? And I don't think I ever went down that path. But exchange rate is awesome. And what we're hearing from some of the large technology companies deploying in Montreal is that their cost of deployment with total cost of ownership, people in, exchange in, everything in, they can actually deploy in the Montreal market less expensive than they can in Virginia, uh, where everybody's deploying today. So there is a very unique cost analysis that can be done on the Montreal market. And you're absolutely right. Exchange plays into that cost analysis for sure. Yeah, I was just in Toronto uh, a couple of months ago, actually, where we briefly sat down and shared a beer before I had a runoff to to a dinner uh, for the structure research uh, event uh, infrastructure, and it blew my mind. I went to do an exchange, and it was like one point three uh, Canadian dollars to to one U.S. dollar, and that instantly was the thought in my head: is holy crap, this has got to make it even more appealing for U.S. companies who are looking to deploy into the Canadian market. It is for sure. For sure. So what is you know, one of the questions that I like to ask, especially folks such as yourself who just have, or, you know, I can imagine that you have your hands in a lot of different pots and you see so much stuff coming across your plate any given time. But what is one of the things that has really made you step back and say, Holy crap, this is amazing. Or this is, you know, something that's blown your mind or, really transform maybe the way you, you look at what the future may entail over that's, that's come across you over the last few months? Yeah, I think 
I think the the one thing, and it, again, it's all related, and unfortunately, a lot of these answers are are the same. But the one thing that really blows my mind is the scale, the scale at which hyperscale providers deploy and the amount of demand that they are seeing compared to kind of what I would say general cloud businesses. When I was with Primus and we ran our data centers across the country and we had cloud implementations that we had developed on our own and we were doing infrastructure as a service, we were growing pretty quickly. And uh, you would see you kind of you'd see that growth and you were pretty impressed. It is it is shocking the difference between kind of how I'd say general cloud providers, service providers grow in comparison to how some of these hyperscale providers grow. It is it is mind boggling the the rate of growth and the quantity of infrastructure they they deploy on a daily, weekly basis. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of the US based data center companies are acknowledging that and they're actually shifting how they even go to market as a result. So data center REITs, for example, that traditionally focused on both retail and wholesale are really reducing the headcount on the retail side of the house and focusing more headcount on the wholesale side of the house just because they they want to cater to that significant growth in demand. Um, which raises the next question that I had that's... Uh, are you seeing some of the hosting companies, like the Canadian-based hosting companies, being adversely affected as a result of the the growth from Azure and AWS and Google and and the like? You know what? I I, I don't know the exact answer to that. Um, I, to be fair, while I've, over the last couple of years the growth of Root has really consumed my personal time, um, but uh, I would say I would say that I don't. I doubt it. Um, and I would say that the, the business that I would think is going to hyperscale is probably not necessarily the same business that would have gone to those guys. Uh, and I, my bet would be they're still getting their share of the market. And they probably have both. They've all probably seen an increase in their own growth. It just would be at a different scale, obviously. Um, I would think had the hyperscale providers not come to town, they would have absolutely seen far growth and far in excess of what they've seen. But I do believe the small and mid-sized cloud providers are still are still successful working for those companies who want a more white glove service. And I'd say that's the one thing that I'd say the local or the Canadian-based um, smaller cloud service providers can bring. They can bring white glove. They can come and see you at your office. They can talk you through your migration. There's a lot of value for some companies that those those providers bring. And I, I, my bet is that their growth rates are still fairly strong. Yeah. And it's, I have a very similar sentiment. And at least what we see is a lot of customers still want to talk to a human and sit down with them and um, have that personal relationship versus working with such a, a mega company that, uh, you know, you know, you're one of millions of customers, if not hundreds of thousands of customers. Uh, and if you're not spending, you know, gobs and gobs of money with them, you may not get the attention that, that you want. Exactly. So AJ, the very last question that I'll ask you here, and I greatly appreciate you taking the time. Um, but do you love data centers? I do love data centers, Sean. Um, I, I don't think I could possibly not love data centers and stick around in the industry for 20 years. So, uh, it's been a it's been an amazing ride. Um, certainly want to keep going, and I do see a ton of evolution and a ton of opportunity in the space, kind of in the coming uh, kind of years. Um, 
uh, I, I think they're a very integral part to technology as it as it stands today. Well, I greatly appreciate you taking the time, AJ, and dropping your your wisdom and your knowledge and your experience here on the podcast for our listeners. And for those who are listening that may want to get a hold of you, uh, how can people reach you? A buyers at rootdatacenter.com. And Sean, I, we really appreciate the opportunity to be able to chat. And uh, uh, it, was a, it was a great conversation. Thank you. Awesome. Well, I'm sure we will talk soon. And I can't wait for you to, uh, to fly me up to Montreal so I can tour your facilities. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a plan. All right, man. Thank you. Peace. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.